Welcome to the Making Headway Podcast, a podcast for brain injury survivors by brain injury survivors, providing resources and camaraderie for anyone recovering from any type of brain injury, with your hosts, Aaron Martin and Mariah Morgan. Welcome back to the Making Headway Podcast. I'm Mariah. And I'm Aaron. And today we are very excited to have another speech language pathologist on. She'd be our second one. Um, her name is Jen Freeburn. And I am fortunate enough to know her through personal experience. She was my speech-language pathologist for outpatient speech. And uh, she's very well-versed and very eloquent in how she represents information. And I think you guys are going to learn a ton from her, just like I did. Um, So today, we're going to be talking about cognitive fatigue with Jen Freeburn. Welcome, Jen. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. So just to give a uh, little bit of background, um, can you tell us about how you came to be in speech therapy and kind of to the brain injury world? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually had planned on coming into speech pathology as a a voice um, specialist, but on entering grad school and learning a little bit more about the neurology world, I actually wound up becoming so fascinated with the processes of the brain in particular that now I do neurological therapy for speech, language, and cognition. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, So we see folks from who have had brain injuries, all different types of brain injuries from a head strike to a stroke and also brain tumor, multiple sclerosis. We see a lot of different people with a lot of different types of things happening neurologically. And yet we see a lot of the same types of patterns and people come to us with the same similar types of complaints. And so I'm excited to be talking about fatigue today because this is one that a lot of people experience. Yeah, absolutely. We can speak from personal experience on it, uh, both of us. It's just the thing for me that is the lingering symptom. I just will occasionally still have a day two years out where I'm like, this is just a brain fog day. (laughs) So, and I know you dealt with it too, Erin, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's what I was just going to say is that, you know, Jen was really the person within my recovery that made me not feel crazy. They wanted, you know, I left the hospital without any type of therapy my local brain injury association directed me to the fact that you're going to need cognitive therapy. And my first thing was, what the heck is that? Like, what type of therapist does that? And they directed me to speech. And I was able to get visiting nurse speech. But, you know, they're they're kind of the jack of all trades. And she was wonderful. Don't get me wrong. I mean, she was researching and working so hard. But getting that connection then to outpatient speech to someone specializing in brain injury really made me realize that the fact that I can't get through a day without taking a nap or the fact that I can't even watch a full TV show without having to then lie down for two hours, that's not normal. And there are ways to get through that. And you don't have to just go back to work while you're still you know, stuck in that place. That was Jen for me. So um, Jen, if you don't mind sharing how you know, this fatigue is just rampant among all the different types of brain injuries. It's probably one of the biggest things that draws them all together. Why? Why do we have this? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I wish that there was a clearer answer that we had a very good understanding of precisely what some of the mechanisms are behind fatigue. 
We don't necessarily, but there are certainly some theories out there that I think have gained a decent amount of traction. So first of all, just to define our terms, I think it's really important to think about the types of fatigue that people generally experience. So these are generally thought of in kind of three different camps. So you've got the physical fatigue, which we can all relate to, especially anyone who's ever been an athlete. After a really long run, you can feel your body physically fatigued. It's muscle fatigue. It's definitely a physical sensation of wanting to rest, lie down, rest the actual body itself. So that's sort of more of a physical um, sensation of fatigue. Then a lot of people also speak about the psychological fatigue, which looks a little bit more like a lack of motivation. Like I'm just having a hard time kind of starting anything, not necessarily wanting to get anything started. And then the third camp, which is really the one that I tend to focus the most on, is more of this mental or cognitive fatigue. So it's this idea of um, a lot of people use the term fog. This is a really common description because I think that's honestly what it feels like. And most people can relate to this, this kind of idea of burning the candle at both ends, right? Overworking, doing too much. And we get that feeling that I just can't attend anymore. I can't I can't be present with the task that I'm doing. I can't focus heavily on this. And that I put the label of mental or cognitive fatigue on. And it can have a lot of different faces. So we'll probably get to that in a bit. But that is kind of the common one is the the fogginess, the difficulty with attention, um, and just not being able to feel like you can fully and totally get focused on something. So the general thought is that, so first of all, I think a really compelling theory is just the fact that a brain is healing. We've had an injury, just like if you had a cut and that cut started to heal, if you were to, you know, roughly scratch against that cut, you would realize that it wasn't fully healed and that it would it'd be a little more prone to kind of rubbing off against that rough surface. The brain is sort of the same thing. It's healing. And so in the process of healing, there's just a little bit less energy there. And so um, it can just, things can be a little more taxing than they were before. Something that might've felt simple before might be a little more taxing. One of the other ideas about where fatigue comes from is actually the idea that the brain's just a little less efficient. Whether or not it's because of that healing process physically, like the actual physical process of the brain healing itself after an injury, trying to regrow neurons and just generally take care of itself is, is one piece of that. But just this idea that in the healing process, we might be devoting additional attentional resources to certain aspects of life and that those resources drain energy and that energy drain leads to fatigue. So again, just some theories, but that's the idea. And I think this is relatable for most people who have experienced mental or cognitive fatigue, because we can feel that, that something that used to, maybe we might've considered it as easy, feels suddenly quite draining and it can be striking. It can be, you know, even 10 to 15 minutes of something that at one point you might've thought, yeah, that's a pretty easy task, suddenly feels like it is a monstrosity of a task and that you might have to take a nap afterward. Yeah, oh, I think we it's can also, relate. <laughs> it's also kind of hard because like there are certainly cases where you've you're experiencing, you know, mental fatigue and it's very clear that it's a result of your brain injury, but especially as you continue the recovery process, it becomes less and less easy to point at a situation like that or a day like that and say this is because of my brain injury. You start to say, "Oh, well, I didn't sleep that well last night." Or I mean, my my case, I'm a parent and I also own a business. So anybody who's, you know, a parent or a business owner knows you're not that well rested. <laughs> um, so it's like you, the, the waters get muddied a little bit and it's easy to write things off for other reasons and 
not actually give yourself the rest that you should be getting because it's still recovery. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also that maybe the brain after R would suspect, I don't know, we'll go with maybe, but I would suspect that the brain after injury is more sensitive to those secondary reasons. So I didn't get enough sleep last night. That might've been something where earlier in life, you might've said, ah, I'm just going to, you know, that's fine. You know, have a cup of coffee and kind of push through it and pushing through kind of stops being an option when yeah. you're recovering. So I think that's probably a piece of it too, is certainly those other variables have a huge impact. Um, sleep being a major one, quality of sleep and length of sleep and stress levels and everything else that's going on in life, but the brain might be more sensitive to it when it's in a healing process. Yeah. I also think it's worth rewinding really quickly to just pause on something that you said, Jen, because having now been a part of the brain injury community for as long as I have, which isn't really that long in the scheme of things, but you see time after time on support group boards and the Reddit board for TBI and concussion, like, why am I so exhausted? Your brain is healing. Pause on that. Your brain is healing. The brain is the most important part of your body other than your heart. And you could maybe make the argument between them, but I would vote for brain. And in order for a brain to heal, of course, stuff like that's going to happen. I, I, it, you know, like post-injury, I think I was in that camp where I was like, why does, why is this happening? It's terrible. But two years out, I'm like, it makes complete sense. Your brain is healing. <laughs> okay. And ram. <laughs> well, your brain is such a metabolic organ. It takes a vast majority of the energy that your body produces just to run your brain on a normal day. Then you get an injury and it's needing to take even more resources to try to heal plus run your brain. It's no surprise that it's difficult to keep up mentally because there's so much going on there. And I think it was you, Jen, that talked about in our therapy sessions that you you have two different batteries. You have like your day-to-day -day battery, but then you have your reserve. And once you've used your day battery all the way down and you start chunking into your reserve battery, that is not going to be fixed in just a night of sleep. You're not going to gain that back. That was huge for me. I don't know if you have anything you can add to that, but yeah. I I won't take credit for that metaphor. I did say it, but I just don't want to take credit for making it up because that was actually a metaphor that a brain injury survivor made up and I thought was so incredibly powerful that I use it all the time. So I do credit where credit is due. But yeah, absolutely. When we think about managing fatigue, it's not just about today. It's it, There's a cumulative effect there too. So if you are, and that's why I love this metaphor. I think it's perfect. If you're draining that reserve and then every night going to bed right at the bottom of the barrel and then waking up and kind of getting back up to the top, that's all fine and good, but that just so rarely happens. Just so often life has other demands in store for us and we have to dip into the reserve and we have to be much more gentle with ourselves in terms of scheduling or placing demands on ourselves after that to make sure that we take the time to, to recover, not recover in the sort of the healing sense in that case, but recover from the cognitive demands. So what types of things, you know, I'm curious to learn, what types of things would be considered a cognitive demand? Because I don't even know that, like, I wasn't aware of what was actually a cognitive demand until I started experiencing it. 
Yeah, I mean, and I'm always saying, and I think this is really important to take away, is that I really do feel strongly that probably a lot of aspects of brain injury recovery, but certainly fatigue management, are much more of an art than a science, and they're so individualized. So, you know, thinking about what is a demand for me? So uh, a lot of people, I will say, have kind of two different triggers. A lot of people are prone to fatigue from sensory stimulation, very heavy stimulation type of environment. So very common uh, grocery store, crowded business, you know, anywhere with bright lights um, where you have a lot of different drains on your attentional resources. So I'm kind of like shifting attention from here to here to here very quickly over the span of a short period of time. That's a big one. Any kind of sensory stimulation. I know sometimes people even are really bothered by anything loud, even if it's relatively low demand. Trying to read, for example, on a train that has those really squeaky brakes can be something that just exacerbates the fatigue because that auditory stimulation is so much. And then on the other hand, a lot of people have sort of the more prolonged, attentionally demanding tasks. So I know a lot of people who actually reading in general can be very fatiguing because it, especially reading something that is, let's say, nonfiction, right? So reading for work, for example, if you have to do some sort of heavy technical type of reading for whatever your profession is, that's very demanding. It takes a lot of processing. You're trying to take in a lot of information. Maybe you're also highlighting and taking notes simultaneously. So anything with that sort of drain on it. I think of it as anything where you would have to sort of uh, kind of focus in, I guess is the best way. Like anything you probably wouldn't do while someone was watching TV in the background, the kind of thing where you would go and tuck yourself into an office to do it, that is kind of the the cognitively demanding type of task. And it can really vary person to person. I've had people who become very fatigued from uh, doing laundry, for example. It's got a lot of steps. There's a lot going on there. And I think it's much more complicated than anybody gives it credit for. I find it exhausting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And there's a physical component there too. So you can then start because those I I gave three fatigue camps, but they certainly don't live in vacuums, right? I mean, so if you're sort of bent over something, cooking does this too. If you're like on your feet at the counter, standing and maybe sort of bent over in a certain way or with the laundry, like I'm standing and leaning over and standing and leaning over, you can get the physical to compound with the cognitive aspects of those tasks. I think it's worth, I'm just going to shout out to the introverts of the world because I am one. Maybe You're here. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, people sometimes are surprised, but I am an introvert. I think if you're an introvert, there's a certain amount of this anyway, because social situations and overstimulation are already difficult in terms of like what you can handle. I have like kind of a limit in terms of like how long I can stay at a party. And then I do what's it called? Like the Irish exit where you just quietly disappear. <laughs> Like, I'm out. (laughs) I'll text you tomorrow. (laughs) But uh, there's a book called Quiet by, I think it's Susan Cain is the author. And I read it several years ago at the recommendation of a friend who is also an introvert. And it's the first time that I ever felt like I was understood in terms of how easily I get overstimulated in social situations and situations where there's there's a lot of noise. So I already had that pre-brain injury and then post-brain injury. It just has been exacerbated, not necessarily in the ways I would have expected, honestly. But yeah, when there's conversation at a table with multiple people having multiple conversations, I'm 
lost at this point. <laughs> like I, if I'm not walking in fully rested, then I'm, I'm probably just zoning out. But yep. anyway, I think that's a really great point. I, and you are not alone on that one. Introvert or extrovert, I think mm-hmm. a lot of people are very drained by social engagement. Even just a phone call, just the, the additional resources that you have to have at your disposal in order to listen and process and come up with a response and respond. It's perpetual changing attention over and over again in the course of a conversation. So even if it's with one person, it can be fatiguing. And then a room full of people, certainly there's a ton of sensory stimulation and just sort of needing to navigate socially that takes takes a lot of energy. Yeah. Mm. Side note, um, since we're talking introversion, my team at work, we were messaging a couple of weeks ago and one of my coworkers, I'm going to see if I can quote her properly. She said something like, ain't no party like an introvert party because the introvert party got canceled and we all sat and breathed a sigh of relief. <laughs> <laughs> Which I totally relate to. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so yeah, any of those multi-step processing, you know, things where you have lots of different pieces of information you have to bring in to complete the task. I know for me, it was really cognitively draining. It still is. It's just something to think about when you're planning your day. So what can we do with, um, you know, we're feeling fatigued. You still have to try to get up and have some semblance of a life. (laughs) What can we do with all this? Yeah. So there's a couple of strategies that I think are really valuable perhaps for anyone actually, but um, most certainly when recovering from a brain injury. And I think that's really what this kind of comes down to is, again, this is not a new concept. Most people have experienced fatigue in their life. All of these types of fatigue, the physical, the more uh, psychological and the cognitive fatigue, we have all experienced them, but then all of a sudden they loom very large in the setting of trying to especially return to activity, whether it's just your life at home, school, work, whatever it may be after a brain injury. So what we need to do is basically kind of double down on what you might've done before. So I think the number one thing is to understand, to try to understand yourself. So what are the things that trigger my fatigue? So Mariah, it sounds like for you, it's definitely going to be if I'm going to have to be in a conversation with somebody else. And I know a lot of people in today's life in COVID times are especially experiencing this with video calls, that they're very exhausting to sit on a video call. So anticipating, okay, I know that's going to be hard. So how can I schedule my day so that I give myself the best chance of being as attentive and not fatigued at the beginning of that call and treat myself kindly at the end of that call to try to limit how much that fatigue interferes with the rest of the day. So really understanding some of your own patterns, I think is huge. Built into that is probably understanding what does fatigue even look like for me? So I think brain fog is very clear. That's one of the, or that's sort of an oxymoron, but I think it's pretty obvious (laughs) to us when we're having brain fog. So that's one that we can sort of know. It just feels like I cannot pay attention to this right now. I'm just exhausted. But there are other signs too. So one that a lot of people come up upon is, is decreased frustration tolerance or this irritability, this feeling of just kind of itchiness. And like, I just, I feel like I can't. I don't want to do this. Everything's sort of a little bit annoying or frustrating. That's one I think to really be on the lookout for, because I know a lot of people are quite hard on themselves when it comes to feeling that annoyance. And then it kind of 
it gets compiled by the, you know, self-criticism of, well, you should just be able to do this. It's just two hours on this meeting. Like just sit in the meeting and pay attention, just take the notes. And I think just understanding that, hey, hey, this is actually probably a sign of fatigue, not a sign of weakness in me as a human being in some larger way, but it's a sign of my brain is tired and I need to do something about that. So just understanding your own signs and symptoms, I think is a huge thing. That's a really good point. Mm-hmm. I, honestly, I my eyes are wide because I really struggle with recognizing when I'm in a brain fatigue moment. I've had conversations with my husband about this. He's always like, if you're feeling that way, tell me so that I can help you deal with it. Or I can like relieve you of dinner plans or I can, you know, like I can assist and give you some relief. But my problem is being able to recognize it and then communicate it. Mm -hmm. Half the time I'm too late because I'm like, you know, like not I don't want to say in touch enough because I feel like I'm pretty in touch, but it usually when I realize it's a brain fatigue moment, it like hits me like a really hard rock, (laughs) you know, maybe an hour after I'm already into it. And it's almost like, yeah, it's like too late to, (laughs) to ask for the help that I needed, you know, earlier, but yeah. It is. And knowing, that, knowing those signs. Yeah. It's really important. It's really hard. And they're, they can be easy to ignore at first is what I've found. You know, I, I was really good at understanding my triggers when I was at home because at home I didn't have a lot of responsibilities. I didn't have a to-do list per se. I, everything could be shifted. Everything was flexible. But when you're back in that work environment of, you know, actually having things that need to get done – Taking the time to recognize that I'm tired right now and maybe I need to reprioritize my day can feel daunting because you still have that list of things that need to get done. (laughs) So understanding that and then taking action on it are two very important things that can be hard to do. Mm -hmm. I think so. And, you know, knowing those early indicators, like what does this feel like early on? Right. So not when you hit the wall, which I've heard so many people describe it like that, where it just comes, it feels like almost out of nowhere. And all of a sudden it's, it was fine, 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 fine. Absolutely not fine. And understanding maybe there are earlier indicators, but we have to both get good at checking in with ourselves on a really regular basis, which not a lot of people do. We're very task oriented. So, oh, I'm almost at the end of this task. It's like 20 more minutes until I'm done with X. Let me just try to push through it. It's sort of a more common mentality than let me check in with myself. How am I feeling right now? Could I use a break? So it's really kind of training ourselves to figure out what are those early indicators so that the wall doesn't feel so much like a wall, but maybe more like a really steep hill that all of a sudden you can get the sense of when you start to climb it and you can notice, okay, this is, this is getting tough. Now I can maybe do something about it. Yeah. I think that I I was realizing this. I was reading some text messages that I sent to family. And I was looking back on like this series of text messages where I I wish I could blame autocorrect. I do think autocorrect is a little out of control on my phone. But there were words that were wrong in my text that I think my brain was so tired I was I was missing <laughs> things and I didn't realize it in the moment and I like in hindsight, like where, where could I have, you know, like taken a pause and, and, and 
diverted this situation. I mean, it wasn't like embarrassing. I just like, it's embarrassing for me because I'm a perfectionist, but (laughs) my family doesn't care. But it just was an interesting thing. Like I just recently realized about like those exhaustion moments. Right. And if we could go back in time and know, well, how did you feel 20 minutes later? I wonder if it would be profound exhaustion. And that was an early sign or something along those lines. Yeah. But it is. It's hard to spot. It's hard to spot, especially when we're in the midst of pushing through it, which it sounds like you might have been in the midst. Pretty much always. Is, that's, that's my approach, unfortunately, for me. <laughs> yeah, It's hard not to. I mean, it's yeah. built into us as a society, um, by and large, is that it's this idea where we measure things by completion. When did, did you complete the task that you did? Nobody checks off their to-do list because they, you know, did a really good effort. You usually don't get that check mark. I mean, yeah. I know it seems like a little bit of a joke. It almost seems ridiculous. Like, well, of course, I'm not going to check it off if it's not done. But this idea that we're we're fighting to complete something, yeah, and maybe not necessarily doing ourselves a favor by pushing through till the very end, maybe yeah. potentially making errors, which I think is a huge sign of fatigue and a risk of fatigue for anyone who's returning to work. What is that stuff that gets scheduled at 4 p.m.? What is that? And and it cannot be high stakes. It has to be as low stakes as can be. The text messages to the family, for example, no big deal if there's a couple of errors. In a lot of different situations, if you're swapping a couple of numbers and you do um, some kind of accounting for work, right? Really problematic. So trying to structure the day around ideal times is another aspect of, you know, how can I just get a little bit more in tune with some of my patterns here? And if I know I'm at my peak from about 10 to one, making sure I do the hardest stuff with breaks interdispersed in that time period so that they are as good good as they can be. Yeah. I never thought about that. I don't know why, but that makes complete sense. And I know you were really helpful for me, Jen, in helping to figure out where some of those things were and actually like writing down the schedule and how did you feel and how fatigued were you just to kind of keep track of it in a journal format is that a strategy that you find works well for everyone? Is it something you just threw out to me? <laughs> what do you think? I think the majority of the time doing some type of activity and fatigue journaling is helpful. I'm always cautioning people against going too deep into the details on that. So you don't want to feel like you need to write every single thing you do during the day because that's going to be fatiguing in and of itself. But to keep a, a simple log. So, you know, did some... Uh, bill paying, for example, is good enough. It doesn't have to be, you know, went online and logged into these three different sites, like paid these three different things, whatever it is, like did some online bill pay is enough detail. I also usually say um, rate your fatigue on a really simple scale is usually the advice I give. So like one to five, five being the most fatigued, one being the least, and just how was I feeling at that moment? So you might start to notice, oh, I wake up, I kind of feel eh, kind of groggy. I hit some kind of peak around some time in the day where I kind of have like a, you know, one level of fatigue. I do some more difficult stuff. It gradually starts to go down as the day goes on. And then I need a definitive break around sometime in the late afternoon. That's a common pattern. But yeah, just knowing your, uh, your own patterns, I think we basically have to journal it to really understand it because without the data, we're just kind of guessing, honestly. And we can guess. We do a decent job of guessing because everyone knows, you know, oh, I'm a morning person or I get a second wind at 6 p.m. or whatever it is. But I think to to know and to really deeply understand 
uh, some of the patterns and also some of the triggers. You have to keep a good log and it doesn't have to be something, you know, it doesn't have to be a really intense Excel document. It can just be as simple as a journal. I know for myself, my daily calendar that I have for work with where my appointments are, especially when I first started back, I would just put like, okay, I had that meeting and my fatigue level is a three. And just to kind of get an idea of what is it that's going to be dragging me down here at work and where do I need to schedule in some breaks? Yeah, exactly. And I think there's also a, a secondary strategy built in here. So number one, for sure, kind of journaling and understanding is a first step. And then we can start to tweak the schedule. Another built-in strategy there is trying to increase routine if routine isn't inherently there in that moment. So for a lot of people, especially if you're hospitalized, going home after that and then having however much time to recover at home, whether it be a span of weeks or months, sometimes that routine can be very limited, meaning our sleep-wake cycles get thrown off. We don't necessarily do the same things in the morning every day. We don't necessarily have that regularity that we're by and large kind of forced into for most of our lives, um, with rare exception for some folks who do truly freelance all the time and don't have as much of a routine. But I think that routine itself, too, is a part of the tracking. So you can also be kind of just trying to establish some sort of regularity around what time did I go to bed around what time did I wake up? Was it fairly regular? Am I noticing big gaps there? Was I better off when I had those four days in a row where I did have more sleep regularity, which I would say is usually the case. And then trying to understand, okay, yeah, actually I did really well on those three days where I actually had an appointment smack in the middle of the day because it gave me a day some structure. So let me try to, to, carry that forward a bit. Absolutely. So keeping on tune with those types of strategies can be challenging too. It's like building any other habit. You got to give yourself grace. Um, I'm learning this, you know, as you kind of stem away from looking for your cognitive fatiguing triggers, then you start building back in and then you find yourself crying at the end of the day and wondering why this happened because you just kind of can let that stuff slide. So any tips in those types of scenarios where you're trying to try to move on, but maybe forgetting what you should be doing? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's so hard. You raise a really great point too, which is that increased emotionality is also a sign of fatigue. So it's, you know, to the earlier point, where does all this come from? It just feels sometimes like it, one thing compounds upon the next. So I think that's just a good point in general is that sometimes this can feel particularly taxing because we're fatigued and the fatigue is making it feel more taxing, right? Like it's actually increasing the amount of emotionality around it. So I think that's a really important point and giving ourselves grace is a huge uh, piece of that strategy. I think the thing that is usually the most meaningful is trying to focus on what are the restorative strategies. So I often talk about, I've used the battery and charging a lot as a good kind of analogy metaphor um, for fatigue management, but I also often talk about the bank and how we take a lot of withdrawals throughout the day from our energy bank and need to make deposits. We have to make deposits and figuring out and those deposits are essentially breaks. They're what give us back some energy that we have just taken away. So trying to figure out what those are. I think a lot of times we 
well, everybody strays toward breaks that feel a little bit mindless. So kind of maybe scrolling a news feed, you know, reading some headlines, looking at social media. And it's really not that restful a lot of the time. It's really not very cognitively restful. So trying to identify some activities that are very much not only restful, but pleasurable. There's there's something that give you back that energy. Um, for a lot of people, interestingly, it's actually physical movement that can give back sometimes some of that mental energy. So balancing the active rest with that that cognitive exertion, uh, the active rest being a rest for your brain, but activity for your body. So stretching something gentle or taking a walk, going outside if it's nice enough out to do that. Um, maybe even doing some other form of gentle exercise that you enjoy that's low cognitive engagement, right? So we don't want to be taking an intensive class. You have to memorize sequences of exercises, but something gentle that you can just follow along with sometimes is a good activity to give back. And I think focusing the energy on what are the, so rather than focusing on the negative, what am I doing that is, that is exhausting me? I'm clearly doing too much every day trying to focus on how can I do more of these things that actually give me something back, I think is a nice way to flip that script a bit and kind of offer that kind of gentleness for ourselves to be instead be focusing on, on adding something relaxing and pleasurable rather than taking away something that feels, you know, the, um, the dreaded word I hate productive um, and not kind of holding ourselves to that same standard. And on that note, setting good expectations. So I think it's really, really important that people have the opportunity to discuss expectations with somebody who understands the trajectory of recovery, no matter where they are, and not setting that too high because a gradual return to activity is always the best choice, no matter what. When we know this from even think about the parallels to athletic training, nobody would go out and try to run a marathon if they hadn't started with running one mile. We would, wouldn't do it. I think that that philosophy of like making sure you're doing something that gives you something back is a good way of thinking about it. I think that can be different for everybody, honestly. And I've talked about this, I think, before on the podcast, but I fairly recently, well, a few months ago, was talking to my therapist about you know, I had taken some drawing classes after my brain injury because I wasn't working full time yet. And I've always loved art and started college as an art major and eventually was like, how am I making money doing this and moved on? But it still brings me joy in a way that very little else like brings me this special kind of joy. So she was like, well, if you are needing a break in your day, you are sitting in an office right now where your team is not and you have all this space. Why don't you just set up a mini art studio in your office and at lunch, you know, like spend, set a timer for 30 minutes and just draw for 30 minutes. So that's pretty much what my lunch break is right now is 30 minutes of drawing. And you do, you are using your brain to draw. I'm not just like doodling randomly, but somehow it's like stretching a muscle that gets contracted during my work day, if that makes sense, like gives me more mental space. And I would never have thought of that myself, I think, but it is the thing that gives me the most back in the middle of the day. You can be creative with it. Absolutely. And I think it's, it is, you're right. It's different for every person. Some people would say that would exhaust me to, you know, just pick up a pencil and start drawing. But for other people, that is a major resource. 
Same thing with things like music. Some people find it kind of draining to listen to something where they kind of know the lyrics. They find it distracting. Other people find it very restful to just be able to focus in on that. And some people find meditation, honestly, kind of hard. If it's something that you're not used to or you tend to have a bit of a busy mind, it can be hard. But that same person might appreciate a walk in that same way where you can be focused on what you're doing and be very present without feeling like you need to be sitting still, which might not work for you as a person. So exactly. I couldn't agree more. I think that's a great point. It really is individualized and it's what gives back to you as an individual and gives back to a little bit of your energy resources. I love it. I'm feeling a little bit of the cognitive wall at the moment. (laughs) So, you know, just recognizing like those opportunities that you have to be able to take a step out to give yourself some rest and then come back to it refreshed. It's just, it's so much about knowing yourself and wanting to provide yourself self-care. It's just so important. Are there other strategies that we should be looking to when it comes to cognitive fatigue? Yeah. I mean, so the other one that kind of lives in this realm is just trying to be on the lookout for patterns. So sometimes we see this pattern of what we'll label as boom or bust. So this idea of going too far into the camp of I have now overdone it and then needing a lot of rest and recovery time. So just being on the lookout for those types of patterns, sometimes it happens not because we choose it to, but out of sort of necessity. Again, that's sort of like dipping into that reserve battery, but just really being aware of, you know, have I, have I gone past the point where I am really doing things as effectively as I could right now? Would I just benefit more from taking a break? You're going to hear me say break all the time. So these are really just variations on ways to kind of spot this breaking and pacing way of scheduling. So I think that's a huge one is just trying to find balance. That is the key word is that is there a way of scheduling in my day that doesn't leave me feeling ever like I have completely and totally hit the wall completely, but that I have a sort of reasonable level of manageable fatigue that I then recover from throughout the day? So it's really this holistic kind of taking a look at the whole schedule, seeing where you can implement some breaks and kind of working with that. I think that's a, a huge piece of it. And I would be leaving out something so important without saying that just general kind of brain health type of things are huge in order to manage how much fatigue you are experiencing. So we talked a little bit about sleep, but certainly healthy eating. And I know you all have covered this on other episodes, so I'm not even going to go down that road because I think there's a lot of different beliefs around healthy eating, but I think people know, tend to know what works for their body. And certainly I think there's pretty wide agreement that eating, you know, the colorful plate, a lot of fruits and vegetables, like not a ton of sugar is good for not like brain crashing during the day, not overdoing it on the caffeine, really moderation is kind of a, I think a well agreed upon type of brain health, nutritional strategy. So eating well, staying hydrated. I know it sounds so minor, but it's not. If we think about what's the first thing that's going to happen if we have a bodily need, a physical need like hydration, is that executive functioning is going to go right out the window and we're going to get that fatigue right away. So that that entire set of recommendations around general health and general brain health are, are huge here. They can't be overlooked. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because pre-brain injury, I've always had like blood sugar, you know, 
issues, <laughs> Aaron drinking water. Um, I've always had blood sugar issues and I've always known that like, if I'm tired, the way to fix it quickly is to eat sugar and then I'm racing and then I crash. And that's always been the way my pattern, but post brain injury, even worse, honestly. And so like sugar in my diet has been a huge, you know, like hazard sign, honestly, um, because I can't afford that sugar crash that exists anymore. Like to the, <laughs> it's my hangry is such a joke in my family that like in my dad's, you know, like father of the bride speech at my wedding, he like made a joke about like how if we're, you know, like driving in the car along the mass pike and, you know, Mariah gets cranky, Nat, you better get a block of cheese in her real fast because <laughs> <laughs> it would be like being stuck in a car with a wildcat basically. <laughs> but, you know, like joking aside, it is a serious thing. And like, I think be able, like, being able to recognize that pattern with food is pretty important. Absolutely. It, it's, it's bigger than I think maybe we give it credit for in everyday life and it certainly becomes essential after brain injury, no doubt. So that's a piece of it. I mean, it's also important to think about kind of holistic brain health. If you suspect there's something else going on, you know, vitamin deficiency, even kind of uh, mood-related types of things, like if it's really starting to feel like a, uh, this is actually more of a decrease in motivation, I actually don't want to do anything, that really is a little bit more of a depressive sign than a necessarily just a straight brain injury sign. And there's a huge co-occurrence of depression and brain injury. So I think it is important to just recognize that there could be other contributing factors, you know, low B12, like some uh, things that your doctor could test for, for example, that might be contributing potentially. So it's always worth just kind of examining if you suspect this is actually more than brain fog. This is, I'm, I'm, you know, physically feeling like I can't get out of bed. There could be something else going on, a vitamin deficiency at its simplest or something else. So it's also worth just understanding your body and taking care of your body, I think just is a, is a major part of this. We can't take the brain out of the body. I mean, it is just another organ, a very important one. So I think that's a piece of it. And then I think setting really reasonable expectations. I said that once and I would just like to say it again. I think it is it is very important to consider what are we asking ourselves to do? If I'm trying to return to work, trying to take that slowly for sure with regard to pacing, but also what are those activities that I'm doing every day? And is every one of them essential to performing the duties of my job? Could I ask to be excused from certain meetings that I don't necessarily need to be there for in favor of being able to have that extra hour to do my focused work that I really need that cognitive energy for. So I think uh, saying no to some things in favor of saying yes, because it can be a little bit of a, a balancing act with, I always tell people who are managing fatigue, it's not that you won't be able to do something. Most likely everything you encounter, you will be able to do for some period of time, but it's how long will you be able to do it for and at what cost, what else it has to give in order for you to be able to do that activity. And so thinking strategically about the sum total of things that are important to you as an individual in your life, and then trying to work that into a schedule that makes sense for a healing brain is really just important. And it's a little intangible, but I think it's just important to know that, that it is a balancing act, that there will be, uh, if one thing is let in that is difficult and you decide, yes, I'm going to spend the hour on X, Y, Z, 
that something else might have to go, that something else might have to be, you know, put to another day or potentially we'll have to say no to it. And just understanding that that exists. And it always does. But again, just another thing where the spotlight is shined on it more when the brain is recovering. I think that can be such a hard one for brain injury survivors, like the realization that you might have to reprioritize or prioritize for the first time, really, you know, what you might accomplish in a day or what your goals are. And I really struggle with that because I am a classic overachiever and, you know, like your boom or bust thing, I was chuckling to myself because that's like the cycle of my life, even pre-brain injury. Like I always pushed myself too far and then exploded and, <laughs> and had to rest. But, but I think that one of the things that I've realized partially because of talking about it a lot on this podcast is that you set your expectations for yourself for the most part. You know, of course there are expectations of you at work, but especially when you're recovering from a brain injury, there's a lot of forgiveness coming from other people. It's not to say there aren't the people who say like, you look fine, so you must be fine. But for the most part of people here, you have a brain injury. They're a lot more forgiving of you than sometimes you are of yourself. And the way I've started to look at it is I have these expectations of myself. Are these expectations I would have of one of my best friends who might be brain injured, like Aaron, you know, like, would I expect something like this of Aaron? No, I would be super nice to Aaron because I love her and I want her brain to heal and I want her to live a happy, you know, <laughs> really wholesome and enjoyable life. But then I turn up the magnifying glass on myself and I really, really struggle with it. So trying to put those things in perspective for myself has really been useful, especially I would say in the past year. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree. Turns out I like you, Erin. <laughs> I like you too. Thank you for wanting to help me. But you're so right. Like we're so easy on others and so hard on ourselves. And at what expense is that? Like you're really just grinding yourself down and into the into a rut. And it's hard to climb out of that if you've used up all your reserves. I've heard a lot of people reflect back on their brain injury and say that the reason they thought it actually was uh, an opportunity, um, and I've even heard people use the term a blessing in disguise, was for exactly that reason, is that it allowed them to reprioritize in a way that they had never prioritized before, that they had had to say, you know what, I actually can't say yes to this because it will force me to say no to something that's so inherently important to me that I'm not willing to say no to it, like spending time with family, for example. Mm -hmm. It's easy to not count that as a priority, but it is, and it takes cognitive energy. And so I've heard a lot of people after very hard work of tracking and noticing and recognizing, you know, how many kind of hours of the day can I be doing a cognitively engaging task right now in this moment that they will say it's helped me actually to prioritize in this very critical way that lets me really kind of trim some of the things that were less important and keep all the things that were. And who knows, a lot of people do return to a very high level of functioning and, and wind up not necessarily have to think as much about fatigue on a day-to-day, -day, but I think a lot of people still do anyway, because it is helpful uh, from a general standpoint, because we can all become overtaxed over time. 
Yeah. I mean, it's probably one of the hardest ways to learn that lesson, but I 100% agree. I am glad to have learned it. I don't know that anything but being knocked really hard on the head would have done it to me because I'm a stubborn idiot. <laughs> but, but really, like looking back, reflecting on my time pre-brain injury, I was gauging my happiness by performance in a lot of ways. And I live a much more genuinely happy life now because I'm less focused on proving myself to the world and a lot more focused, not to perfection, but a lot more focused on taking care of myself and prioritizing myself and my personal needs over other things. So, yeah. Yeah, it's that concept of you matter. Like you cannot Mm -hmm. produce, you cannot do, you cannot work if you don't take care of you. Yeah, you can only give so much of yourself. Yep. Yeah, it's it, before brain injury it was never a priority my self-care. You know, what I considered self-care was going to the gym after work to work harder to make my body look different, you know? So that it it's just that concept of you as a person and what you need for rest and to make you be full is a priority and a top priority. Did you have any other advice you wanted to share, Jen? I think holistically, this is really, um, these are some of the biggest strategies that I often find are very, very helpful. I also would say it is great to be able to have this framework and for people to have to kind of think through it and have the opportunity to try to say, oh, okay, maybe I'll start fatigue journaling or I'll start doing this. But I think it is really valuable to have a thought partner around this. And so I would say anybody who feels like they are struggling with extended fatigue after a brain injury, I highly recommend bringing it up with your neurologist. If you already see a speech pathologist, definitely bring it up with that. I'm sure that most people already are if they're already seeing a speech therapist, because we do tend to ask about this because it's a really common symptom. Even uh, a therapist, psychotherapist, I think is a good person to bring this up with. They can be a good thought partner around uh, the tracking and the management side of things. Obviously, uh, the more neurological side of uh, the rehabilitation specialties, so uh, a lot of times speech pathology or sometimes even occupational therapy, we tend to do a little bit more like diving into the nitty gritty of the uh, metacognitive awareness pieces of this, like what taxes attention and why, that sort of thing. But certainly just even having an outlet to discuss, hey, I noticed this. I feel like this is happening. I noticed this pattern. Here's what I'm going to do. And having that accountability partnership with somebody who really understands concepts about uh, cognitive fatigue, I think is, is incredibly valuable. So I would encourage anyone who's experiencing this to not feel alone, to know that your concerns are valid and real and that this is happening and it's common. It's not, you know, you're not just having to deal with this on your own or you're not Um, I mentioned this before, but I hear a lot of people uh, call it out as a weakness. You know, this is something I must be doing wrong. And it's it's not. It may be that some things need to shift. And it may be about changing the way that you operate a little bit, actually, fundamentally, which can be a big shift, but it can be a really meaningful shift. And it can be these strategies that we've been talking about, about breaking and pacing and understanding what a break looks like and knowing how to treat yourself in a way that gives energy back can ultimately lead to such better outcomes overall because our cognitive energy levels dictate what we do every day. I mean, we use cognitive energy for everything. So I do think it's important not to feel the need to suffer alone on this, but it's really important to to seek the help for it. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's nice to, I mean, like, I think most people are looking for, like, tips and tricks and apps and whatever, but, like, it's, I think it's important to boil it down to, like, the basis of all of this, and some of it might be a little bit of a perspective shift, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. (laughs) In fact, the sooner you have that, this might be the better. (laughs) And realizing you don't exist in a vacuum And we actually rely on interdependence, and it's okay to find someone to get help from. Sometimes you are not your best mirror, and you need somebody that can help you figure out where, you know, opportunity exists. So finding someone, like Jen said, like a speech therapist, a psychological therapist, a neurologist, an occupational therapist, there are people out there that are trained to help you see what you know, you could work on in some potential areas of opportunity. Some good places to go to find some of those people would be your local brain injury association for your state. A lot of them have resource lists. That's probably going to narrow down to the ones that are most available in your area. I'm trying to think. And I think asking asking your medical team, I think it's huge. I think that a lot of people, even especially after a mild brain injury specifically, often aren't followed by neurology. And so just being your own best self-advocate and getting a team, even if it's someone you see once or twice, or you follow up with at a distance, just to check in and ask about resources, having a connection, especially to a hospital community, and especially if it happens to be that you have access to something like an academic institution, I think it's just, it's huge to just have that connection, to have the resources, to have the access to somebody who might be able to make a recommendation for whoever it is that might be most beneficial to see is, is really important. And I think a lot of times people don't get referred there right away. So it is about self-advocacy often. For sure. Yeah. Self-advocacy. It's a million dollar buzzword in this Mm -hmm. world, at least it's an important one. So thank you, Jen, so much for joining us to our listeners. Thank you for joining us. If you are interested in hearing more from Jen or have questions for her, feel free to shoot us a note at hello at makingheadwaypodcast.com or DM us on Instagram at makingheadwaypodcast. We will be happy to pass any questions or thoughts or positive feedback along to Jen. And again, I just want to reaffirm what Erin said about following up with your local brain injury association for the resources that are available there. So, so thank you so much for joining us, Jen. It's been a pleasure. Thank you both. This has been great. This is Mariah signing off with my co-host, Aaron. We'll talk to you next week on the Making Headway podcast. Bye. Thanks for joining us on the Making Headway podcast. For more information and show notes, visit makingheadwaypodcast.com. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and leave us a review. Check us out at Making Headway Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and share with your friends. Catch you next time. All topics are intended to be used for educational and entertainment purposes only. The podcast is not to be used as a substitute for medical advice. Always consult with your healthcare provider for any issues or treatment considerations you may have. For our full legal terms, please see our website at makingheadwaypodcast.com. This podcast was recorded, mixed, and mastered with love at Stout Heart Studios. Sun rises across the ocean. 